All right, I have a new declaration for us to say this morning. I'm going to read it to you, and then I'll read it to you in part so you can uh, work, work on memorizing it and uh, say it with me. Here it is. Um, in every situation I face, there is always a way forward through God-given wisdom and strategies. Okay, listen to it again. In every situation I face, there is always a way forward through God-given wisdom and strategies, all right? So how many of us face tough situations, we don't know what to do, and we just, we feel trapped? Well, this is truth, it's based on scripture. You can look up in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, James 1, 5, there's always a way forward. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this now a phrase at a time, and you can repeat it after that with me. In every situation I face, there is always a way forward through God-given wisdom and strategies. Okay, let's try the whole thing again and um, take a deep breath, breathe out when you're speaking, look up, okay? So I can hear you, all right? All right, ready? Let's do it. In every situation I face, there is always a way forward through God-given wisdom and strategies. All right, so that's a truth that you can live with. That's a truth you can carry into every day and take to every problem, every situation that you face. Now, I wanna start my message this morning. Um, I'm gonna share a little story with you that I'm not really proud of, but it's true. And it really illustrates uh, the main point of the message that I want to give today. So my sophomore year of high school, we had a substitute teacher the last few months of uh, the school year. And um, we gave that substitute teacher a very, very hard time. I mean, it was very frustrating and to the point of cruelty as, as a class. Now, at the end of the year, a few days before school ended, uh, she was taking her opportunity to tell us all what she thought of us. And she was pointing out certain individuals, and she'd point a guy out and say, you know, you're, you think you're so cool, and blah, 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 and different ones. She finally came to me, and I, I think I was last. And that's either because it, I don't remember what happened after me, or I was really last. But she looked at me, and she said, and Van Cochran, she said, you are a wolf in sheep's clothing. She said, you start off with you this, being this really nice guy and uh, being respectful and like you're going to be a great student, and then you ended up being just as bad as the rest of them because just as much, much of a troublemaker as anyone in this room. And she was right. It was true. I, I did have the ability to know how to act. And I, I had some desire to act the right way, but I, I, I knew how to come across as respectful and to be respectful in, in the outward sense. But that's not what was in my heart. And when the class started to go downhill, what was in my heart came out and thus me being a wolf in sheep's clothing, okay? So uh, this, this, this principle is something that Jesus is 
hammering in this, ser- this series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, he wants it to be clear the role that the heart plays in change bef- before God and in walking with God. And in fact, the culture that Jesus was speaking into had largely been impacted by uh, the scribes who were the legal, um, like the lawyers of the law, and the uh, Pharisees who were legalists. Down, they, they, Jesus at one point said to them, you tithe mint and rue, meaning if they went out into their garden, they picked 10 leaves of mint, they tithed one of them. They were that particular in their external behavior. And at one point, Jesus even said to them, you are like wash, whitewashed tombs, because the Jews had this rule that if they touched a tomb, then they were ceremonially, ceremonially impure, and so they would whitewash the tombs. So you could see, you know, there's a grave right here, don't step on it. He said, you're like whitewashed tombs, all nice and neat on the outside, but in the inside, there's a rotting corpse. And so Jesus wants to get to the point of, uh, of actually fulfilling the Old Testament promise that God gave that he would give his people new hearts and that he would actually write his law on our hearts. And so that's about to happen soon when Jesus goes to the cross, is resurrected and ascends to the Father. From that moment on, then every believer gets a new heart. And Jesus is kind of in an in-between time right now, before the kingdom has really been reestablished fully on the earth, planted solidly on the earth, and yet, uh, and, the, and the time prior to that, the old covenant period, and yet Jesus himself brings the kingdom in his person, and so he's teaching them things that are going to be true very soon. And this whole passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus strikes at the heart of the issue. We're going to read it right now. It is Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. We're going to read through verse 30. Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Here, you follow along as I read it. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If this is a very strong statement now that he makes, I'll explain it later, but he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members of your body than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the thrust of this message is this. It is honoring the marriage covenant. That's the title I gave it, honoring the marriage covenant. And that first phrase, verse 27, where Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now, where did they hear that said? It's one of the 10 commandments. It's the seventh of the 10 commandments. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say, which is the next thing he says, what he's really doing is asserting the same authority as God on on the mount when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Because what he's doing right now is he is unfolding the meaning of the Ten Commandments. He's showing them what these things really mean. And so this whole idea of adultery starts, starts, let's just define it. 
looked at several dictionaries this week, and uh, this would be a, a, cu- a current definition for adultery, and I think it fits also with the biblical definition. Adultery is this, the voluntary act of sexual intercourse between a married man or woman and someone he or she is not married to. Okay, you get that. We know it. Is this something that God actually forbids in his word? We're going to see later that God's very serious about this. Now, to understand why he's so serious about it, we have to go back to the, uh, to the story of creation. And we see there that God created mankind. It says he created mankind, male and female, he created them. So God created male and female. And as you read through the first two chapters, you come to a point where God says this. He says that they are to leave their homes of origin, mother and father, and that they are to come together and cleave to each other. And that's speaking of a lifelong commitment that two people make in marriage. They're going to cleave together, and they are going to become one flesh. And then he goes on to say, and they were both naked and they were not ashamed. And so that that speaks to total intimacy. So in the marriage covenant, what God says it is, is a commitment, a lifelong commitment to one other person in which you are going to become one flesh with them and in which you will have total intimacy in relationship with them. And total might be too much to say because we're all still growing, aren't we? Lori and I have been married for almost 47 years, and we're still learning new things about each other, still growing in all of this. But what we see here is God outlining the, the content and purpose of marriage. And right in the center, he says, the two shall become one flesh. Now, that is speaking of the sexual relationship within marriage, intercourse within marriage. And when he, when, when, when he says that, it will be easy to say, well, okay, so that's a symbol of the deeper relationship that the two people have. And it is a symbol, but more than that even, it actually deepens the relationship. When the husband and wife make love together within the context of marriage, husband and wife, their relationship, their bond is actually deepened. And the one flesh thing is more than just an illustration. It is a truth. I'm going to show you that in a moment. But the, the, what happens when a couple makes love is this. There is a physiological connection that happens. In fact, uh, scientists have determined that every time two people have sexual intercourse, there is, they are imprinted on each other's brains. There's a chemical release that imprints that person on your mind, on your physical brain. So it's a physiological connection. Now, secondly, it is an emotional connection because this is the most intimate thing any two people can do with each other. It's, therefore, it's emotional, and there's an emotional bond that, that has the potential to form through sexual intercourse. The third thing is this. It is a spiritual union. And the spiritual union is illustrated in 1 Corinthians 6, where the Apostle Paul is talking about, actually talking about visiting a prostitute. And he says, why would you do that? Because don't you know that when you go to that prostitute, you become one with her? 
and you're taking Christ because Christ is in you, and therefore you're making him one with a prostitute as well. But the idea there is that there is a spiritual bond that forms when two people have intercourse. And so that's one of the reasons that um, so often in counseling situations where there's difficulties in marriage and you find out that one or both of the partners had sexual partners prior to marriage, or, or maybe there was a marriage even that ended in divorce, there's still a bond there connecting those two people. And having that bond while you're trying to form this bond, and then you have this other bond that is in your background and kind of trailing along with you. And what we'll do, we call those soul ties. And what we'll do is we'll pray and command that soul tie to break. And it does. And when the person confesses it to God, and we break that soul tie so that they can be freed from it. But so so the, the binding together into one flesh is a real thing. It's, it's not just, a, uh, it's not just a, an illustration to say how close you should be in marriage, but there is a real sense in which it's just an absolutely real thing. Now, the book of Job illustrates this. In Job 1 and 2, Satan comes to God, and Satan comes to God with plans to attack Job. And some people think, well, God gave Satan permission to attack Job, but it's not the case. God says to Job, he's already, he's in your hand because Satan had authority over the earth at that time. Since Jesus came, Jesus broke Satan's authority over the earth, but at that time he had full authority over the earth and therefore he could attack Job anytime he wanted to. But God says, I am gonna set limits on what you can do to him. And so God says, you can do anything you want to him, but you cannot touch his own flesh. You can't touch his own person, his own body, his own flesh. And so Satan comes and attacks Job, kills his children, takes all of his flocks and all of his wealth and everything. And nevertheless, in spite of all of that, Job continued to honor God. And so Satan hates God, and he hates anyone that tries to honor God. And so Satan comes back to God again with a second time, he's going to attack Job. And God says, all right, this time I'm going to give you permission to touch his body, to touch his flesh. And so in that case, Satan comes and afflicts Job with some horrible boils all over his body and, and so, so that he's in extreme suffering physically. But at that time, Job's wife actually says to Job, you are a miserable creature, Job. Why don't you just curse God and die? And so what happened was in the first instance when God said, you can't touch his flesh, he did everything he wanted to except bring anything against Job or Job's wife because she was one flesh with him. The second time when God said, okay, you can touch his flesh now, but you can't kill him, Satan afflicted Job physically, but, but turned his wife's thinking so that she rejected him and actually cursed him in, in, you know, from her heart, rejecting him. And, and so what you see is when God said, you can do this, but don't touch his flesh, Job's wife was covered in that. She was considered part of his flesh. And later when you can't touch his flesh, she was, she was covered in that too. She was included in that where 
where she was part of his flesh. And so this whole thing of being one flesh is a real thing, and it's a real thing in God's eyes. And it's, I mean, it tells us why would anyone want to spoil this with a se sexual relations outside marriage? And this, the sexual drive is so, um, so powerful. And, and, I, and I say this to the unmarried, stay pure so you don't have to go through the pain of breaking soul ties that you formed with other people because of having sex prior to marriage. And to those that are in marriage, stay pure so, so that you don't experience any of the um, ill effects that adultery can bring into the marriage relationship and, and into your family and your family line. But in Hebrews 13, 4, uh, th this is why God states this. It's a very powerful statement. It says, marriage is to be held in honor by all. And the marriage bed is to be undefiled or pure. For the sexually immoral and adulterers, God will judge. Now, when he says marriage is to be held in honor by all, that's a, that's a statement that if you think about it, doesn't, it doesn't follow as logically as marriage is to be held in honor by husband and wife. Don't commit adultery. Stay faithful to each other. Be committed to each other. But when he says it's by all, to be held in honor by all, he's spreading it out to everyone that hears this. And, and, and specifically, he's saying to the young men that might be single, there might be a single man here who's saying, well, I'm not married, so I don't need to worry about adultery. But he's saying to that person, don't you dare try to seduce this other man's wife. You, you will be violating the, the, the sanctity of marriage and of the marriage bed. And he's saying to any single women around, don't you dare try to take this man away from his wife. Don't dare try to do that because you'll be violating the sanctity of the marriage relationship and the marriage bed. And God's intent is mar the marriage unit and then the family unit that typically normally grows out of that is a foundational building block for everything he wants to do in the world and for, for, for healthy relationships and healthy culture and healthy society. The, the, the family unit is the basis of it all. And so God says here, keep it pure. Don't, you know, don't let it be defiled. Keep the marriage bed pure. But then he says, for the sexually immoral and adulterers, God will judge. And this word sexually immoral is a Greek word that could just as easily be translated as uh, fornicator. Fornication is typically sex outside marriage where, uh, where the, the people are not married. And adultery is, as I defined it earlier, when sex is held had with someone that you're not married to. And so when he says that, he's backing up this whole idea that this by all is a broad statement. But the... Um, the fact that they're going to be judged is significant for us to understand that it doesn't necessarily mean that, that God's going to, you know, like personally judge each one. You know, that God has his thumb ready and he's going to squish you, you know, squish anybody that does this. It's not necessarily saying that at all. In fact, I think more likely what it is saying is 
that built into the very fabric of the way God created us and designed us, there are consequences to, uh, to ignoring his ways. There are consequences to adultery. And whoever commits adultery is going to suffer those, uh, those consequences that are just in the system. It's kind of like there are consequences to ignoring the law of gravity. If you ignore the law of gravity, you, you step off a ladder 10 feet above the ground, you're going to pay a price for that. And, 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 and when, we, when we ignore the, um, the, the beauty and the power of what God created uh, marital sex for, there's a price to pay for that. It's just part of the system. And so the whole idea is it's designed in. So adultery damages the oneness of a married couple, damages the marriage itself. Adultery damages trust and intimacy of the husband and wife. As well, adultery can lead to violence. I mean, how many murders happen or how many people are attacked every year uh, across our nation because their spouse was unfaithful to them and, and they are, they're taking vengeance on it. So there's, there's, there's that whole thing, the, the potential for attack. There's jealousy and broken relationships among friends. When something like this happens and you have a circle of friends, so often that circle of friends divides over who they support. So it impacts that. I think more than anyone, it impacts the children. If there are children in this family, there's just a definite impact upon them. And if children haven't been born yet, but they are later, unless there's repentance and real, real clear repentance and turning, that hidden sin is going to affect the children and affect future generations. And the whole idea of secrets and lies, it, it just destroys relationships and it destroys family systems when there are secrets and lies. And so, this is something that, that we determine we're going to avoid at all costs. That's what God's saying. And, and just from personal experience, Lori and I have been pastoring s since 1979. And prior to that, we led in, in churches and, and, and had a lot of contact with people and, and discipling and stuff like that. And so for 40 plus years, we've been doing this. And I want to just give you a couple tips, tips a couple points of advice of where, where there might be danger. If you, as a man, are talking to a woman and she's attractive to you and she's giving you her attention and it, it's normal for that man to be attracted sexually, but if that stirs something in you that goes beyond that, then you better be careful with that relationship. And the, and the woman you're talking to is probably as innocent-hearted as could be. All she's doing is being friendly. But if, especially if that man is not getting attention from his wife. And the same is true. If, if a woman, if there's a man that always is complimenting a woman, boy, you look beautiful today, and, and, and she's not getting attention like that from her husband, then there's the potential there for some bond to begin to form that can lead into bad places. And especially since what Jesus is saying is that, uh, as we're going to see here in just a second, what Jesus is saying is that it's already in the heart. It's all, it, it's all, adultery is already what you've committed in your heart if you, if you give in to this. And so 
we've seen too this, that if a man is attempting to become closer to a woman than he is to her husband, or he's trying to become close with a woman uh, minus the involvement of her husband especially, there's something wrong with that. It's just not wise or healthy. And it might be innocent, but knowing men as I do, it's pretty good chance that there's at least some other things going on there. Um, the same is true the other direction, that if a woman um, is becoming friendly with a man and, and becoming more reliant upon him emotionally than she is on her own husband, then there's a problem with that. And we've got we to repent of that and, and break that and, and move away from that. Now, another small thing I've seen is this, teasing. I've seen where you have a man and a woman who are not married to each other, they're married to other people, but they develop this teasing relationship. And you know what John Wimber, who founded the vineyard, he said people like to tease the leader because it's a form of intimacy. Teasing is a form of intimacy, and it demonstrates that, you know, hey, I can tease the leader. And so te teasing is a form of intimacy. It, it breaks down barriers and bonds. And if two people have, and I'm, I'm not talking about like, you know, just tell a joke or, you know, a, a good joke or something like that, or, or even a, an innocent tease, but if it was really innocent, it, it shouldn't be like private. But if there's a teasing relationship, what can happen all too easily is that allows either one of the two to say things and, and just pretend, oh, I was just teasing. You know, like, boy, I wish I had met you 20 years ago. You know, before I met him or before I met her. And, and it just creates an atmosphere where that kind of thing can happen. So um, these are just a few things we've seen in the past that we need to be aware of and, and wise about. And so verse 28 um, Jesus takes it beyond where the Pharisees had taken it. Now, the Pharisees did try to take it deeper, and their conclusion was that adultery is stealing, and that was as deep as they went with it. And that's true, it is stealing, and, and it, or it's giving away something that is not yours to give away. But uh, here's what Jesus says. He takes it to a whole new level. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now the word looks is in the present tense, which means ongoing looking. It's not just a glance, it's not just a boy, that's a pretty girl, and then moving on with your life. And he does say men, because men seem to have, be more attracted by the physical appearance than women, although women can lust as well, it can fall into this just as easily. But there's, like a looking, the Greek word means to look and pay attention to. It means almost like to study something and uh, to take note of, to observe it. And when, when he says it looks with lustful intent, this lustful intent, one author um, said that, that it means they're contemplating the steps towards adultery. Lustful intent. And the idea is not just seeing someone that is attractive to you, but actually embracing that feeling of attraction. It, it means that you are 
nurturing it and entertaining it and indulging the feeling of attraction and amplifying the feeling of attraction through the imagination, which God gave us our imaginations so that we could conceive of things that we haven't seen or done so that we can conceive of him even though we haven't seen him. We can read the Bible and read about different things and we, I, can, I can imagine that, I can see. Like Amanda at the beginning of the service talked about imagining what God's gonna do today. The imagination is given for beautiful things like that. God speaks to us through our imaginations in a profound way at times and Satan wants to spoil that. And so he wants to, he wants to tempt people to use their imagination for some form of internal sexual gratification. And he says they've already committed an adultery with her in his heart. It might not be the physical act of adultery, but it is nonetheless a step that direction, and therefore adultery. And so when, when you see this, Jesus ties the heart intent directly to the action of adultery. And I was talking to a friend after the first service who said that he received substantial freedom when he realized, you know, I would never commit adultery. He said, I really believe that, I, I would not. So when there's a thought, when, there's a pa- when there is a passion aroused by the attractiveness of someone of the opposite sex, and, and I'm tempted to entertain it, I, if I attach that thought to the actual act of adultery, and I say, I would never do this, so I'm not going to do this. Does that make sense? Well, I'm going to talk about this in just a moment more. But he says the eye, uh, you know, gouge your eye out, throw it away. He said, cut your hand off, throw it away. That's all hyperbole. He doesn't really literally mean to do that or that that would solve the problem. He's just, he's just trying to say, Take this seriously and take the whole idea of lustful thoughts and lustful imaginations and daydreams. Take that seriously. Don't don't excuse that. Take that seriously. So how do you actually deal with something like this if if you're faced, like if you struggle with this? And really what you have to do is to base your whole resistance to this on your identity in Christ and recognize that when you come to know Jesus, he gives you a new heart. In In your new heart, that does not lead you this direction. It's the old thoughts that we have and the passions of the flesh combined with the old thoughts that we have that can lead us that direction. And so I recognize I'm a new creation. I recognize I am righteous through Jesus. He gave me his righteousness. And I recognize that, well, Ephesians 1.3 is a great passage. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. I have every spiritual blessing. I have everything I need. Everything I need to resist this. And so Romans 13, 14, Paul said this, Romans 13, 14, he said, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. And so how do you do that? Well, at the moment when there's this temptation coming to take this a step further than that's a really handsome guy or that's a really 
pretty woman. When you're tempted to go further than that, you stop and you say, wait a second, I'm a new creation in Christ. I have a new heart. I have Christ's righteousness in me, and I have the Holy Spirit in me to empower me to live like Jesus. In fact, I have Jesus' heart in me. And so I, with that, I'm going to say no to this thing because I am not an adulterer. I'm not going to do it out there, and I'm not going to do it in here. I am not an adulterer. I am righteous through Christ. And what you're doing is you are asserting your authority in Christ. The authority you have as a new creation is kind of like um, <clears throat> if the police make a mistake and they break into your house and you're not the guy, there's another house on the other side of town with exactly the same address, but they got it wrong. You can, you can try to fight the police off for your own strength if you want to and do whatever, you, do whatever you have at hand to fight them off, but I guarantee you, you're gonna lose if you do it that way. But what you wanna do is at the right point in time, you say, here's my identification. You know, here's who I am. And this, this states my authority to say to you, it's time to leave. And so when you're tempted, whether it's with anger or jealousy or envy or discontent or whatever it is, you pull out your identity card. You say, hey, here's who I am. I am righteous in Jesus Christ. I have a new heart. I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and I have the Holy Spirit inside me to empower me. And so that's who I am. Now you got to go. And so there's just freedom in this when we walk this way, and particularly applied to this whole issue of inner heart adultery. Now, I just have a, that's the message today. Um, it, it is about having an honoring marriage, but I wanted to take just a few minutes and say some positive things about marriage, okay? So I hope you get the message about adultery and how to handle that, inner adultery, and it's not enough just to resist it out here. I wanna say no to it in here as well. And, um, but, but I wanna say a couple things about marriage beyond this. First of, first of all this, you have to view your marriage partner as your equal because you are equals. And in Genesis, when it says uh, God created Adam and then God said, it's not good that the man would be alone. I'm gonna make a helper suitable for him. That word helper is a key word to understand. I grew up in a culture where a helper stands back, maybe with a bucket of nails, or with the different tools, and when you need a tool, they hand it to you. And they better be there on the spot, and a really good helper is gonna anticipate your needs. So you don't even have to say what you need next, they're gonna know and just, just hand it to you, kinda of like a surgeon and the nurses all around um, obediently providing every instrument the surgeon needs. And that, that's not a healthy view of relationship with anybody. And uh, as I said the first service, my wife disabused me of that thought over the years. <laughs> but then I finally learned what this word helper means. And in Hebrew, literally, the first time I heard this, I thought, that can't be, that can't be. So I know enough Hebrew to, I can rummage around in Hebrew and figure it out. And I'm telling you, this is exactly what the word means. Originally, the word in Hebrew meant to surround someone in order to protect them. That's what a helper was. 
someone who surrounds to protect. The second thing it became was a military ally, a helper in the, New, in the Old Testament, most of the time is used of God helping Israel. And there's certainly no way you would look at that and say, well, you know, God is less than Israel. And so it means a military ally. And if, you want to, if you're going to form an alliance with somebody that you're going to go into battle with, you want to find someone that's strong. You want to find someone that is your equal in every respect. And that's exactly what this means. It is speaking of God providing someone for Adam that is fully his equal, as strong as he is, and his ally in the battle of life. And so that, that's key to recognize. Now, now, different roles, yes, there are different roles, but equals. And, and, and that's crucial to understand. Now, the second thing I want to talk about for just a moment is core needs. Each, a husband and a wife have different core needs. And it's summarized in Ephesians 4, or Ephesians actually 5.33. I, I wrote the reference down, 4.33, that's the wrong reference. It says, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. That's to the men, the husbands. And the wife must respect her husband. This statement, I believe, reveals the basic need of the husband and of the wife. For the wife, the basic need is love. She needs to know that she is cherished, that she is treasured, that she is valued, and, and, and the husband's got to focus his heart and his mind on that, on figuring out how does she, what, what makes her feel valued, what makes her feel treasured, what makes her feel beautiful. And so the wife's greatest need is love. The husband's greatest need is respect, which is a part of love. I mean, you, you can't love without respecting, but it's kind of like the lead element of love that a husband needs, the tip of the spear there is respect. So uh, a, a, a guy told us this once, and this is hyperbole once again, okay? It's exaggeration for the sake of emphasis. And he said, Lori, someday Van isn't gonna be paying attention and he's gonna drive the car into the ditch. And you're gonna wanna crack him over the head for it. But he said, instead of that, look at him and say, honey, I know that you can get, up, get us out of this. So it was, I thought that was funny. Didn't you think it was funny? <laughs> Prof, okay, it's profound. All right, we'll take, I'll, I'll settle for profound, okay? But the, the point was that, um, it, it just, a, just a, a, a corollary to that, I had a guy in seminary that was speaking to us and he was a well-known pastor of a large church. And he said, my wife is just so sweet. She's always, always, and never says an ill word to me. Is always sweet and supportive and loving and kind and on and on and on and on. And he said, uh, and I pray you guys all get a wife just like that. And then he paused, and, he, and I can't remember how he did this, but he said, you know, uh, no, not, not. He said, my wife breaks a two by four over my head every once in a while, and I need it. And he said, I pray that God gives you a wife who will be direct with you and who will, you won't grow if you don't have that. And so there's, there's a balance in that. But um, back to the wife, I think it's safer there. First uh, Peter 3, 7. He says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And literally that means live with your wives according to knowledge. 
And so that old adage, haven't heard it lately, but I used to hear it, you know, men cannot understand women. You don't, it, it, you don't have to understand women. You have to understand one woman if you're a man. That means you've got to study your wife and understand her. And so live with your wife in an understanding way. Know what, know what blesses her. Know what, know, know what um, helps her. And then he goes on to say, showing honor to your wife as the weaker vessel. Now, I've thought about this. In, in what regard would a woman be the weaker vessel? I, I want to say this, not emotionally. Uh, because women are stronger than men emotionally. And the reason they're stronger than men emotionally is they express their emotions. And men don't. Men have a tendency to hide their emotions. And so men, because of that, we're not as strong emotionally as our wives. And I just want to say, guys, that's why you can never win a fight with her. You can't win an argument because she's stronger emotionally. But you can become exasperated and frustrated and angry. And if you do that, then this fits in. She's the weaker vessel physically, typically, not always, but typically the, the man is bigger and stronger. And, um, and, and so if, if the man doesn't appreciate his wife and if he, if he gets angry and begins to speak in loud, angry, attacking tones, he is doing damage to his wife's heart and because he's threatening her. And you just don't want to do that. And so that's what it's talking about when it says, as the weaker vessel. But, but it goes on to say, since she is an heir with you of the grace of life, which I've already shared about a military ally, and then so that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you know that if husband and wife relationship is not growing in the right direction, it doesn't have to be perfect, but if it's not growing in the right direction, it hinders prayer life. And, and so we want to treat each other with this respect and love and kindness. And, um, you know, f with the husband, um, again, you find out what's his love language. And, uh, you know, respect is probably going to be a big part of that. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Encourage him with positive statements. And with your wife, listen to understand her, not to fix her. Let Jesus make do any fixing that needs to be done, okay? And... Um, Make her feel like she's the most special and beautiful and precious and intelligent woman in the world. Do that. Make that your goal. And likewise, women, make him feel like he's the strongest and wisest and most capable and most handsome man in the world. Make him feel like that. And when we're doing this, focusing on each other, meeting our needs, then we really pretty much a fair proof in adultery-proof our marriages. So, would you stand with me?